Blog Welcome, everyone. <laughs> Hello, everybody. This is Greg Masters, and you are listening to This Week in Account- Accountable Care, and I'm getting an emergency broadcast on my cell phone. Great timing. And we're broadcasting today from our studio here in Marin County, beautiful Marin County, California, usually from San Diego, but we've shifted our venue today. And uh, we're going to, um, we have two special guests on today, which is a rather timely and important uh, bit of, uh, uh, of a chat. And it has to do with coming on the heels of the announcement by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, specifically about some updates on the, uh, the Pioneer ACO program. So we were fortunate to um, actually secure uh, two people from uh, an important perch in the respective organizations on this question of the Pioneer Program in the Affordable Care Act under the ACO provision. So we are joined today by Dr. Jerry Penso, who is the Chief and uh, Quality Medical and Quality Officer for the American Medical Group Association, also known as AMGA, and also on the line, I believe, is Jim Hansen, Vice President at Lumeris and uh, also shepherding the Accountable Delivery System Institute uh, that Lumeris, I believe, is the principal sponsor of. So let me just confirm. Jim, are you with us? I am. Thanks, Greg. Great. Thanks for joining. So, Jim, welcome to the program, and Dr. Penso, welcome to the program. Why don't we start Great. off... Good uh, to be here. Okay, great. Let's let's so let's start off with uh, before we dive into the the topic. Let's uh, at least start off with some introductions uh, as to you and and what you do for your respective organizations. So, Jim, let's start with you. Um, sure. Um, I'm vice president of the Accountable Delivery System Institute, as, as you'd mentioned at Lumeris, and and what this is is the uh, the abbreviation the ADSI is is where we're, we're helping to do knowledge transfer for for, um, uh, for the experience that we've gotten that we started in the St. Louis market almost 10 years ago um, before it was even called accountable care. We, we, we started, we had a physician group who, who wanted to practice medicine differently and started to build processes and tools to, to, um, uh, you know, that, that morphed into what in, ended up being called accountable care. And, and again, now it's, is in year eight, and we, we've built a Medicare Advantage plan around that to facilitate that, that accountable care. And then since then, we've, we've broadened those tools nationally, and then we have, we have customers across the country. And, and so the Institute um, um, shares, essentially does knowledge transfer and, and, and shares the learnings we've gotten from this now eight years of year-over-year learnings of practicing accountable care and shares it with health plans and health delivery systems across the country. Thanks for that, Jim. And Dr. Penso, tell us a little bit about what you're doing over at the AMGA. AMGA is a trade association, and we represent uh, the medium and large size multi-specialty groups and healthcare systems and the integrated uh, care delivery model. Our uh, groups have been very involved in providing coordinated care and have uh, been very engaged and involved in this move to new payment models. And, and for example, nine out of the ten groups that were in the, if you will, the progenitor of the, of the ACOs 
the uh, physician group demonstration project, nine out of ten of those groups were AMGA members. When the Pioneer program was uh, announced, many of our groups were interested, and actually 25 of our member groups out of the 32 Pioneers uh, were AMGA member groups that were either an ACO or are part of a Pioneer ACO. And in addition, we have 58 of the uh, groups out of the 200 plus that are Medicare shared savings plans. We've been very um, uh, engaged and involved in learning from those groups and having those groups share their knowledge and best practices. So for example, uh, at AMGA, uh, besides advocacy here in the DC area on behalf of our groups, we also have a quality program where our groups share their knowledge um, and we run uh, collaboratives where groups that are either um, ACOs or want to learn about becoming an ACO get together over a course of a year and, and share their knowledge and learnings and work with experts to develop their uh, ability to uh, be successful. Thank you for that. So let's pivot to the um, the news, if you will. And the news is somewhat, I believe, uh, subject to interpretation or perhaps is in the eye of the beholder as to whether it's seen um, uh, in a positive or negative light. Uh, the actual announcement from uh, CMS came from Marilyn Tavener, and she's quoted as follows as saying that these results show that the successful Pioneer ACOs have reduced costs for Medicare and improved the quality for the care of their patients. Meanwhile, over at the um, Modern Physician uh, online publication, uh, they lead with uh, seven Medicare Pioneer Accountable Care organizations that didn't produce savings in the first year of the Obama administration's most ambitious test of the accountable care model have told the CMS that they will leave the Pioneer program and enter the Medicare Shared Savings program, while another two participants have indicated they will leave Medicare Accountable Care entirely. So let's uh, go to you, Jim. Uh, how are you looking at this? Um, through what lens do you see these comments, and uh, is this good or bad news, and what does it mean for the future of ACOs? Um, you know, I, Greg, I, I don't know if it's good or bad news. I, we, you know, frankly, we weren't really surprised. That, you know, I, I did a couple of blogs um, earlier this year, um, the first one after um, – uh, Clayton Christensen came out and said that ACOs were, were you know, were, were dead on arrival, um, and talked about the fact that that ACOs 1.0 and 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 they were narrowly defined, weren't really systemic, uh, transfer and transformational, and were going to be challenged, and then it was going to there was going to be um, fallout from that, um, and then uh, then later on as we heard through the grapevine that there was a lot of unrest in the pioneer groups. Um, I, I actually thought that there would be more that would to, that were that were going to completely drop out. Um, so I wasn't really um, surprised by that. Um, I, I can't, you know, in terms of cost savings as a percentage of the total cost of of care that these organizations have, you know, you know, we've seen groups in 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 St. Louis, and again, we have groups across the country, but we, we have eight years of data, so that that has a time series of validity to them. Um, that have gotten 10, 20, 30 percent cost savings, but it's taking many years to do this, and this is a one-year checkpoint. So, I, I think, yeah, yeah, a couple of them have gotten some low-hanging fruit, and, and frankly, a lot of that depends on where your benchmark started. And 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 so, um, like anyone, benchmarks are the, just that. 
um, it gets a lot harder in years two, three, and four. Um, and uh, years four and five are, 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 are you know, you've, you've got to really kick up your game. So we're in year one. So we're in a very early um, place in this journey. And just to clarify, there are buckets uh, out there from commercial to the federal version, which is the Medicare Shared Savings Program. So we're just now talking about the federal version. So, Dr. Penso, same question to you. AMGA has quite a few dogs in the hunt, so to speak. So uh, what's your take? So I would agree with Jim. We're not at all surprised. Um, we expected that and, and to be honest, I think CMS and CMMI expected that some groups will succeed and some groups through this learning process will figure out that uh, the parameters of the model combined with their ability to execute just wasn't a good match. Um, so we're not at all surprised. I would also concur entirely with Jim. It's only year one, and this is an experiment. And the experiment is uh, going to be ongoing as we learn and evolve uh, new types of payment models within Medicare and, as you mentioned, within the commercial market to change from, if you will, um, uh, pay for volume to pay for value. So we um, were not at all surprised, and I think the important part is what can we learn from this? What can we learn from the groups that succeeded and the groups that felt that this model wasn't right for them? What can we learn uh, that could either improve the model or what sort of changes do we make in our systems in order to be successful? Um, we were pleased, of course, at the quality um, uh, results that were reported by CMS um, appeared uniformly positive. We were also pleased that the patient satisfaction scores were positive. Um, and the cost savings, um, a lot of the infrastructure, the information technology, and the care management programs that need to go in place do take time to mature, and uh, we anticipate that in year two and year three that the programs um, that invest in those things will see increased cost savings. And, and, and Dr. Pence, what, what were your what's your sense of what were the main sticking points in here? Perhaps uh, rationalizing the exits, the exits, if not the 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 downgrading to the standard Medicare shared savings program. Can you can you cite those? You know, I think it, each group, there was probably a little bit different reasoning why it wasn't a good fit for them um, that made that final decision, why the Medicare shared savings plan, for example, where seven of the groups transition might be a better match. First of all, in the Medicare shared savings plan, there is the opportunity to take less risk. And some organizations may have felt that their strategic interest in learning, in uh, developing different types of relationships with their patient population and building the infrastructure in care management and IT and analytics could have been served just as well with the Medicare Shared Savings Plan ACO without the downside risk that they experience in the Pioneer. Um, so I, that's, I, I would put it more in a strategic context. What was the strategy of going into the Pioneer program and as they evaluated their options of staying in the Pioneer, switching to the MSSP, or for a small, the two groups, the small number who decided to exit, uh, how did that strategy look a year later to them? 
And Jim, just uh, for those who may not be tracking as intimately with this as, as we're trying to, uh, what, what's the difference between the Pioneer ACO model and the, the, the standard Medicare Shared Savings Program? Well, the Pioneer, Pioneer model has both an upside and a downside risk component to it. It also, um, the groups that are in there were identified as, as leading innovator groups around the country that they thought that, that CMS thought after a pretty extensive application process um, had elements that could transition most successfully into accountable care. They might not have been doing um, accountable care per se, but they were doing enough innovative elements that both them and the, and the entity that applied for the Pioneer Grant, that they could be leaders and could be beacons to the country to do that, whereas the Shared Savings Program, again, was, was, was much more meant to be broadly, much more broadly engaged, which is why we have, you know, uh, hundreds in, uh, in, in that program, and then does not have the, the downside risk uh, component that the Pioneer does. What I what I found particularly helpful, Jim, is a uh, a piece I believe you put up on the blog titled uh, "Accountable Care 2.0." It's a journey, not a program. And then you noted of the 32 entities enrolled in the program, to put it in context, two will leave. That's six percent. Uh, seven will, uh, which is 22 percent, will eliminate the downside risk by defaulting to the Medicare Shared Savings Program. But 100 percent, 32 out of 32, improved quality of care and um, rated highly on patient satisfaction scores, as Dr. Pencil pointed out as well. So none of this occurs. Hey, hey, Greg, Greg, I want to, hey, Greg, I want to echo what Dr. Penzel said about that. I think that is a really important piece. Uh, fee-for-service Medicare is so unmanaged that um, we've seen we've seen in all of the different markets and places we've gone when people focus. And, and, and actually start to look at things in a population manner, that is exactly what we have seen as well. Every single entity has had all of their quality measures go up. So this is very, 100%. So this is, this is consistent what we have found. Um, Dr. Penzo has many more data points, but it's been consistent with what we have seen as well. Dr. Penzo, any thoughts? Well, I, I just want to emphasize that accountable care is not just in the Medicare space. Um, this is in the news right now. We've got 32 groups, but throughout the country, we're seeing a uh, enormous growth in commercial ACOs. And some of our groups, for example, that did switch to the MSSP, I just got an announcement um, over the wire today that one of our groups that did change from a pioneer to an MSSP, just signed a large commercial ACO contract. So I think the, the experimentation with new payment models is continuing and growing, and I think that should be the underlying story, not that at year one of one model uh, with one carrier, if you will, that you know, we have an answer. But I think what we're beginning to do is learn um, what what will work, what won't work in different groups and different models. So I think that should be the long, long-term story, that we're in a period of transition to new payment models that we hope will make more sense with regards to um, increasing quality, increasing patient um, engagement and patient um, satisfaction, and, of course, um, modulating the cost of care. 
and, and perhaps noteworthy in this uh, summary uh, is that uh, just in terms of the federal program reported, um, there were 33 million in net savings uh, to the Medicare trust fund. So that's uh, that's uh, that's that's not something to necessarily discount. Um, I guess you bring up something very important, which I believe is is vital to what the narrative is here. And obviously nothing happens uh, in a vacuum. And unfortunately, health reform has uh, pretty much played out in uh, somewhat of an ideological um, war zone, basically. And uh, coming on the heels of the uh, decision by the Obama administration to delay the implementation of the employer mandate, uh, is not this kind of mixed result interpretation uh, part of maybe the, the, the an attempt to, to to control that narrative? Jim, do you have a thought? <laughs> um, you know, David Blumenthal put out a tweet a little while ago, and he said, you know, he said mixed results is great. It means the bar wasn't too low. Um, this is America. We're going to have people who win and people who don't, and 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 I think. I, I, I have to agree with Dr. Penzo. I think the bigger, the, the bigger, much huge, huge uh, larger win here is that the government seeded a policy change that has ignited a private side commercial ACO uh, momentum that's now exceeding what is going on on the federal side. And even though um, Mark McClellan at the ACO summit, um, Greg, as you know, because you were there, um, Said that you know there's 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 in the works you know ways that they're going to tweak these plans. The commercial side has run and never looked back. That's exactly how government should work. So I, I mean we're we're hugely enthusiastic because that that makes sense. Make a policy change, get some experimentation going, and then let the private side take it and innovate and off of it, and, and, and that's how it's playing out. And I think that's really the, the, the bigger story, as, as Dr. Penzo pointed out. Dr. Penzo, your thoughts? You know, I think in the – let's take the Medicare especially. I think our medical groups are assessing what's their best strategy for uh, addressing the Medicare population. One of the options is the Pioneer ACO model, and some of our groups went forward and applied for it, and as you probably know, many of our groups took a pass. Same thing with Medicare Shared Savings Plan ACO. That's one option. Many of our groups are uh, participating, and some even have uh, insurance plans for Medicare Advantage and are seeing that as uh, their preferred options. Some are working with uh, Medicare Unbundled Payment uh, pilots, and some are working in the fee-for-service world. And then there's, of course, the dual eligibles, the patients with Medicare and Medicaid that some are looking in, uh, at state pilots. So what I would say is we ha just have to put this in context of a wide range of changes and innovations that are happening in the Medicare space. And I think what we're all looking for is what works, um, and maybe it won't be one answer that just works across the country, but what sort of things work? And, and most important, what are the success factors that drive really better outcomes? And, and I think that's what we need to take away from these sort of results is let's look under the hood. Let's look at what happened with Banner Health. Let's look at what happened with partners. Understand what were those success factors and can we uh, learn from them and replicate them? 
so so let me ask you perhaps this question if in the um the the uh crystal ball here the somehow the affordable care act were to be repealed <laughs> total pushback ideological success if you will on the health policy and health reform front would any of this disappear Dr. Penso, and I'm, and by this I mean, uh, obviously, if, if the statutory uh, uh, guidance on at least the federal, uh, what's driving federal programs disappear, that would change things. But just in general, from a health policy perspective, with the commercial marketplace, if any if anything we're talking about in the health, in the accountable care domain, would would somehow that reverse because a law was repealed? You know, certain specifics based on the law and the legislation may disappear, but I think the movement towards uh, value-based payment is is irreversible. Um, And I think it's bipartisan. So if you look back in the Bush administration, there were all sorts of moves towards value-based purchasing by uh, the government payers, and that movement has only accelerated and grown under a Democrat president. So I think um, it's bipartisan that we all want to see um, better value for our healthcare spend. Um, and, and in the commercial market, the, the business case is, is even stronger. So, you know, if the legislation, if Obamacare, for example, were repealed, sure, certain aspects of that legislation uh, may disappear. But I think, at least this is my conjecture, the aspects that really make sense that both Democrats and Republicans would agree upon would probably come back because that's the um, general trajectory that things have been taking for over a decade. So, Jim, let me let me ask you essentially the same question. And from the point of view is um, um, if the narrative becomes, yeah, uh, see, there's sufficient reason to just uh, repeal this law. Let's go do it. W- will that change the dynamics in the marketplace from what you're seeing? I, I think it'll change the dynamics, but I don't I, I agree with Dr. Penzo. I, I think we hit the tipping point. Um, I felt like it happened probably sometime in the earlier part of this year. Um, The conversations that we were having around the country wasn't about exploring options. It wasn't about covering bets. It was about we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And it was happening on the payer side. It was happening on the provider side. It was happening among the employers. Um, Employers have been, you know, have been banging the drum for value-based purchasing for a long time. Um, Healthcare, frankly, doesn't work like a business and so they don't understand it and they've been very frustrated. Well, value-based purchasing, all of a sudden, it starts working like something they understand. So they're pretty excited about it. So, um, no, the genie's definitely out of the bottle, and I and I I I, I don't I can't imagine us uh, turning back. I think you're right. The dynamics, if if it was repealed, there would be different dynamics. Certainly, some dynamics with the government programs. But as as far as what's happening on the commercial side, um, um, we saw it at the ACO summit. I mean. Uh, and the, the employers in, in the Orlando market, uh, led by Disney, said, we're not going to purchase, um, we're tired of purchasing health care services the way we've been purchasing it. We're not doing that anymore, and we, we are going to start, if we have to, we'll start directly um, um, purchasing with health systems. We are going to do what it takes to, to 
put the same rigor in the healthcare system that we expect from other suppliers um, that we have as an uh, you know as a as a as a company. That's a pretty big um, uh, line in the sand, and that falls on the footsteps of what Intel is doing with Presbyterian in, in Albuquerque with their employer-sponsored ACO. So I I don't think it's I uh, you know there's a there's a lot of talk um, about it, and 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 these those are only sort of the few um, lobs sort of over the bow. But um, there's a lot of pent-up um, uh, demand on the employer side, and I, I, I think it's now finally getting into their sweet spot, and I, I think you'll see actually an acceleration. For those that, that don't go to the exchanges, the ones that feel like they still need to offer rich benefits for co competition purposes, they will double down on, on accountable care because value-based purchasing is in alignment with the way they run their business. Dr. Pencil, any thoughts? Well, speaking from our physician group side, what I can tell you is that they are making very large investments in, uh, if you will, betting on the future that includes value-based uh, purchasing and, and population management. So they're investing in IT and analytics at an increased uh, pace because they believe they're going to need that sort of information capabilities in order to manage a population, manage the cost, improve the quality and improve the, uh, the patient experience and, to be honest, and provide the type of information that their physicians are going to need and their other care teams to provide the type of care. They're rapidly investing in care management programs so that they can manage uh, transitions of care when a patient leaves a hospital, that they can manage high-risk, high-cost patients. Um, and they're uh, rapidly investing in physician leadership. Uh, either through internal programs or external programs in order to be able to manage a uh, uh, much more outcomes and performance-based type of uh, world. So I would say from what I'm seeing out there, I, I would agree with Jim, the, uh, the tide has turned and our groups are basically saying this is, what we, this is where we think the world is going. And uh, both of you have uh, experience with this. Perhaps a, a little broader swath over at M uh, AMGA is um, where's the ultimate goalpost here? Is 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 our ACOs simply um, Medicare Advantage light, and is this sort of a staging area to get to the culture and infrastructure level uh, ability to perform? for ACOs that ultimately they're all going to be Medicare Advantage contractors. Dr. Pencil? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't think we're going to end up in a Medicare Advantage 100% world just because um, I think that they're probably based on local conditions and, of course, patient and physician preferences that we're going to probably end up in a world that has a, a variety of selections uh, for uh, and, and options. Um, now, do I think that Medicare Advantage makes sense if you want to try to really move the dial on quality, on cost, and on um, and on accountability? Sure. Um, but do I think that's exactly where we're going to end up with all of this? Uh, no, I don't think so. So I think we'll probably still end up with different models um, that work in different areas. But I do think that accountable care as it's currently designed is probably not the end point. It's going to morph and change um, 
and exactly how, I'm not sure, but there will be um, differences between these early models that we're seeing now and where we are going to be talking about in five years. And Jim, your take? Um, no, I, I, I agree with that. We don't know how it'll morph and change. Um, one of the things that we are doing in the Institute is that I'm, uh, I've been um, polling um, leaders around the country as to where they think we'll be in 2020 to try to help develop a, a view of that. And, and from the early data that, that folks are giving me, um, may, many think that we'll be 50 to 70 percent at full risk under some, you know, some scenario of full risk. And um, you know, and so again, as Dr. Penzo said, based on that'll be varied by geography. But some areas may be almost 100%, some may be less. But but it's going to be significantly full risk because we, you know we, we uh, as, as he does, we deal with 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 um, um, and facilitate and, and and work with physician groups who are on along the whole continuum of risk. You know, from pure fee for service all the way through full risk, and and and, and many have a variety of different. Um, uh, uh, contracts with different payers in different places, right? So it's not so simple as they have one, right? They might have a full risk with someone and a complete fee for service for another, and and a, and a, and a paper performance with you know three versions of paper performance and a, a bundle payment uh, pilot, and you know it's craziness. They have all kinds of different things going on. Where they feel like they really can practice medicine well is when they own the full risk, but it takes them several years. Of moving from the fee-for-service, um, you know, uh, treadmill. Um, and that, quantity Jim, treadmill. I'm going to have to stop you there. That's going to be yeah. have to be the last word. We're going to cut off hard yeah. stop here live. We've been speaking with Jim Hansen at Lumeris and Dr. Jerry Pencil from the AMGA. And join us next episode next time we're broadcasting from this week in Accountable Care. And I want to thank my guests for their time today. This is Greg Masters saying bye now. Until, until we talk to you next time. Take care. Thank you all.